In 1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Mrs. Myra Bradwell, who had apprenticed, passed the bar exam, and had support from legal professionals, the right to practice law. Their decision quoted the Supreme Court of Illinois' opinion that allowing women to be attorneys was never contemplated. A lot has changed in the legal profession since 1872, but there is always room for improvement. From the Florida Bar's Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism, this is never contemplated. Hello and welcome to Never Contemplated. I'm your host, Heddle Desai. At the time of recording today's podcast, the Florida Supreme Court, Legislature, and the Florida Bar are discussing how to address the backlog of court cases created by the pandemic. On January 21st, 2022, Chief Justice Kennedy told the Bar's Board of Governors that there has been a dramatic reduction in the caseload from July through December 2021 based on aggressive case management but that getting the cases back to pre-pandemic levels was an unprecedented challenge. Things could have been worse, though. As all attorneys know, at every level from the U.S. Supreme Court to traffic court, the judicial and administrative systems would have shut down had it not been for the court's use of technology and pivoting to keep the steps of the courthouse virtually open. Although most, if not all, courts in Florida had implemented electronic docketing for filings long before the pandemic, the use of telephone and Zoom for hearings, conferences, and trials was not fully embraced until it was necessary. Starting in early 2020, the ability for parties, witnesses, and judges to appear remotely allowed certain types of cases to move forward. There are hundreds of articles, podcasts, and reports discussing the use of technology during the pandemic and its lasting impact, but today's guest has had a front row seat on the effects of the pandemic on the administration of justice, the uses of technology in the court system, and what the future holds for the workings of the courthouse. Judge Lisa T. Munyon is currently the chief judge of the Ninth Judicial Circuit and has chaired the Florida Courts Technology Commission for 10 years. Judge Munyon graduated from University of Florida with both a bachelor's degree and her law degree and has contributed to Florida's legal systems in many capacities for more than 30 years, including serving in the state attorney's office and then as an administrative judge in the criminal family, general civil, and complex civil litigation divisions. Judge Munyon was appointed to the circuit bench in 2003 and became the first female chief judge of the Ninth Circuit in 2021. She currently serves as a faculty member educating other judges about best practices and procedures criminal, appellate, and family law, and of course, professionalism. Most recently, Judge Munyon received the 2021 Chief Justice Award for Judicial Excellence, the Florida Association of Women Lawyers Jurist of the Year Award, and the James G. Glazebrook Memorial Bar Service Award, all for her work on the bench and her outstanding leadership and professionalism, especially during the pandemic. Welcome, Chief Judge Munyon, and thank you for joining us on Never Contemplated. How are you today? I am well. Thank you for having me. It's great for you to be here. I know that you're very busy, so uh, let's just dive right in. Judge Munyon, you are the chief judge for the Ninth Judicial Circuit. You were born and raised in Florida. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Yes, I was born and raised in Florida from parents who were born and raised in Florida. Uh, I grew up in Gainesville and uh, was the typical 
you know, Florida tomboy where you spend a lot of time outside playing with everyone or in uh, or swimming or fishing. It was a lot of fun. And what is your what did your family do or what do your parents do? My dad was a commercial contractor and did a lot of work for the University of Florida later in life. My mother was the director of pharmacy at North Florida Regional Medical Center for 30 years in Gainesville. Wow. So so no lawyers in your family? No lawyers in my family. Not even in my extended family. I am the first lawyer in my family. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. So you played swimming outside, but I know you also participated in school sports. Uh, what sports were you involved in? I did. Um, I played uh, softball for six years during middle and high school. I was a cheerleader for four years, all four years of high school. And then, believe it or not, and you wouldn't know this because you're not standing here with me, but I played basketball, which if you knew me would make you chuckle because when I stretch, I'm five feet. So basketball would not typically be uh, something that you would think I would be involved in uh, in high school, but I was aggressive and the coach liked that. So I was a starter on the basketball team. Well, I know previous judges on our podcast have talked about how sports influence their lives and how they learned a lot about um, that they use in, in their legal careers. What did you learn from playing team sports or being on the basketball team? Well, I think it provides a great mechanism for learning to get along with other people, even in stressful situations. You you learn to be a team member and that it's okay not to have the focus on you all the time, that it's more about the work of the team than it is about any particular team member. And you stayed in Gainesville after you graduated from high school and you went there for undergrad. What was your undergraduate major and what did you want to do when you got out of school? I stayed in Gainesville because my parents insisted that I stay in Gainesville. I graduated from high school when I was 16 and they were not ready for me to fly the nest at that young age. So I stayed in Gainesville, went to the University of Florida, and I majored in finance is what I finally settled on once I got into into college. And how did you end up in finance? Most people who I know who are attorneys don't like math, but it seems like you do. (laughs) I do. I like math. Um, And when I was growing up, everyone assumed I would go to medical school because I I like math and science. It, It is my forte. And when I went to UF in my freshman year, they did not offer chemistry when I wanted to take it. And so I just you know, shrugged my shoulders and said, okay, I won't go to medical school. I'll go to law school. It was pretty much that flip in a decision, which is why 17-year-olds probably shouldn't make life decisions. And you ended up going to law school in Gainesville as well. Is that right? I did. Yes. yes. I'm a double gator. A double gator. Well, after law school, what was your first job? Was it at the state attorney's office? It was. My first job out of law school was at the state attorney's office in Orlando. I worked for Robert Egan, who uh, was a longtime state attorney here. Did you intern there? How did you end up in Orlando? I had gotten married while I was in law school. So my husband graduated uh, at the same time I did. And we both agreed that whoever got the first job, that's where we'd move. So I got the first job in Orlando. So we moved here. And you've been there ever since. Yes. 
Uh, he, my husband was from Tallahassee. I was from Gainesville. Neither of us really wanted to stay. And I didn't want to move to Tallahassee. He didn't want to go to Gainesville. So we knew it would be Orlando or Tampa. And we decided that Orlando was the place that we wanted to be. So it was a good compromise for you. It was. Absolutely. Before we start talking about uh, your work as in the legal career, I've read somewhere that you had a job picking cantaloupe. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, when I was in high school, um, my high school class had a project to raise money for a charity. And one of the parents of one of the students donated some land for growing something. And we chose to grow cantaloupes because they are, they're pretty self-sufficient until they need to be picked. And so we grew cantaloupes. And then when it came time to pick them, you know, the high school class went out there and picked them. I'm glad it wasn't watermelons because picking cantaloupes was hard enough. I can't imagine heaving watermelons into the back of the truck. It was hot, dirty work. Yes, I, I can imagine. Um, did you get to eat any of the cantaloupe? Or <laughs> I think when we finished, I was not interested in a cantaloupe for several years. <laughs> Were there any other interesting jobs that you had before you started at the state attorney's office? Yeah, I've done you know, things here and there. Um, no real jobs. I worked for my family's construction company when, you know, during the summers just because yeah, I was raised with the work ethic that, you know, if you're not in school and you're old enough to work, you should be working. So during the summers, I would do reception work or go for things back and forth uh, for the construction company. Well, it seems like you didn't have any interactions with lawyers. Is it true that you never talked to a lawyer until you went to law school? That is absolutely true. And a little astonishing as I sit here and, and think about that. I don't know how in the world I could have decided to take on a profession that I had not even spoken with anybody in the profession. It's and that you excelled. Rather irresp <laughs> irresponsible. Well, you you did excel at the law and you were in the state attorney's office. Tell us what you did there. I did a little bit of everything over the, I was there for 10 years. So I had the opportunity to um, do appeals. My first boss was our former chief judge, Belvin Perry, who's very well known throughout the state. And um, he was my first boss out of law school and my first boss when I became a judge. So it sort of came full circle. And in addition to doing appeals, I then moved into the misdemeanor division, the felony division. Um, two other attorneys and I started the sex crimes and child abuse unit at the state attorney's office back in about 1988 or so. And after I got into the felony division and sex crimes and child abuse, I became a division chief in, in the felony division and basically ran the felony division with the other attorneys that were there. So were you managing other attorneys at that point? I was. Was that the beginning of your administrative judicial career? Or? Probably was the beginning of ad administration, yes. Well, you left the state attorney's office to go into private practice. What kind of work did you do in private practice? I did criminal work since that was, you know, came naturally to me. I also did some dependency work, which I found um, both frustrating and rewarding. And for a very short period of time, I did family law. 
but found very quickly that it did not suit my personality. Well, you were in private practice. What made you want to put yourself out there to become a judge? I had some great mentors slash sponsors uh, that were judges, um, Belvin Perry and Alice Blackwell. And I thought they were brilliant. They brought a lot of talent to the bench. And they both talk, you know, talked to me about becoming a judge. And I decided at that point in my career, I thought I had enough experience that I could serve the people well. So I applied to be a judge. Uh, you were appointed by Governor Jed Bush in 2003. Was the process, uh, has it changed any since then? It has not changed a great deal since then. It's still basically the same process. Uh, where you apply to the Judicial Nominating Commission. The Judicial Nominating Commission interviews candidates and sends the name of up to six candidates to the governor to fill a vacancy. Well, you've been in at the Ninth Circuit for a little under 20 years. And in July of 2021, you became the chief judge of that circuit, the first female chief to sit in that position. What are the duties of being a chief judge? I'm really the chief administrative officer of the circuit. My job is really to support the other judges, to make sure that they have the resources that they need to do their jobs. I also try to ensure that everything that we need to cover is covered. Every area of the law that needs to have a judge available has a judge available. And on occasion, that means moving around resources. I might have too many judges in criminal and not enough in civil. So I have to look at the data that's provided by the clerk to make a decision regarding whether we need to change how we've been doing business to better serve the people and make sure that cases can get to court um, in a timely fashion. So what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? What's your day like? I'm not sure I have an average day. <laughs> I, I do a lot of meetings. Um, I am on some statewide uh, committees and commissions. And in addition to that work, I meet with our judges, our other partners in the courthouse, such as the sheriff and the clerk. I'm on several uh, court-related boards, like the board of the Central Receiving Center in Orlando. And you have to attend those meetings. There's a lot of meetings. And I'm not in court as much as I used to be or as much as I would like. I've taken on a small caseload, but uh, it's not a caseload that keeps me in court every day. Well, we've interviewed Judge Gisela Laurent from your circuit. And when she was here, she discussed the importance of having a diverse bench. Uh, I know that you're the first female chief judge of the Ninth Circuit. Tell me about the changes in the bench just over the last 20 years. What have you seen? It really is pretty amazing. Um, if you go back to the late 80s and early 90s when I started practicing, our bench was pretty homogenous, you know, mostly male, uh, mostly white. And now 49% of our judges are women and 25% of our judges are um, of another ethnic origin. So we have a really diverse bench. We have a young bench. Uh, which is something that you really didn't see uh, back in the 80s and 90s. And you're just talking about your circuit, right? Yes, I am just talking about my circuit. Yeah, and how many judges 
county and circuit judges are under your purview? We have 69 judges in the Ninth Circuit. We are third tied right now with the Sixth Circuit, which is Pinellas Pasco. For our listeners who who don't practice in, in your state, your circuit covers Orange and Osceola counties. Is that right? It does. And Disney World. And Disney World. Well, tell us what makes that different from other parts of the state practicing law. In Orlando, as you can imagine, since we have so many theme parks here and it's just a great place to visit, we have millions of visitors that come through our airport and come through or stay in our community over the course of a year. And I think that makes us pretty unique. There are other tourist destinations in Florida, but probably no more, not one more prominent than Orlando. Do you have different kinds of cases? Would you say you're civil heavy or criminal heavy? I don't know that we have any greater proportion of cases, but we do have quite a few cases that um, are either the a, a tourist is the plaintiff or defendant in a civil suit, or they are the victim or, heaven forbid, the defendant in a criminal case. So we do um, have perhaps a higher percentage of those types of cases to our stable population uh, because we do have a lot of tourists. I'm having flashbacks of civil procedure, personal jurisdiction questions. So (laughs) (laughs) flash into my head. And we get very good at that. I'm sure you do. I want to switch gears and talk to you. Uh, You mentioned that you are in a number of Florida court commissions and committees. You're on the Budget Commission. You're on the Executive and Funding Methodology Committee, which I'm not sure what they do, but we'll talk about that. But most importantly, you're the chair and have served as the chair on the Florida Court Technology Commission uh, since, I think, 2012, well before the pandemic. Um, Tell us a little bit about the executive, the other two committees, the Budget Commission and the Methodology Committee, and then we'll talk about technology. The Trial Court Budget Commission is the entity by statute that takes trial court dollars and divides them among the 20 circuits. And the Executive Committee and Funding Methodology Committee are subcommittees of the Trial Court Budget Commission. And funding methodology is just what you would think it is. It is the committee that determines the methodology by which um, dollars will get divided among the circuits. And are those dollars for the workings of the courthouse or for salaries? Were you talking about budget? It could be a lot of things. Uh, Primarily, it's salaries of judges and judicial assistants and court administration personnel. Uh, But there could also be uh, money in there that deals with our physical plant, such as uh, on occasion, perhaps computer equipment, uh, perhaps uh, furniture and furnishings for the courthouse. Um, there, There is a wide range of what is covered by the Trial Court Budget Commission, and it changes year to year because the you know, legislature appropriates dollars on the state level, but we're also funded by our counties. And the counties are the ones that are responsible for the building and for the communication within the building. So we have 
very diverse sources of, of money. We have you know some that comes from the county, some that comes from the state. And so every county would, would have different needs, different sources. Yes. Judge Munin, let's talk about the role of the Florida Cork Technology Commission. I want to start with asking you, what was the focus of that commission prior to the pandemic? Where were we at right before the pandemic? Right before the pandemic, um, we had a stable, mature system for viewing electronic records online. Almost every clerk uh, in the 67 counties in Florida has uh, non-confidential court records available for viewing online. Uh, We have a very mature e-portal system uh, that receives filings from attorneys or or self-represented litigants and allows e-service of other parties in those cases uh, through the portal. So that was the that was the main focus of what we were doing and what we had done before the pandemic. Okay, and when the pandemic hit, most I think all courthouses actually closed down to the public. Tell us a little bit about the closure, how long it lasted, and what you were doing. And meanwhile, I, I'm sure you were behind the scenes trying to figure out how to open it back up. Uh, I remember the day, March 14th, 2020. We got a. Um, administrative order from an emergency administrative order from Chief Justice Kennedy that suspended jury trials for two weeks uh, because of the pandemic. And in the Ninth Circuit, we've always been a leader in court technology, and we thought that we were pretty prepared to move from in-person hearings to um, at hear, attendance at hearings uh, virtually, and we found out that we really overestimated our our capabilities. And it quickly became apparent that the pandemic was not going to be over in two weeks. Uh, Chief Justice Kennedy extended his order. Um, he appointed me as chair of the uh, work group on the continuity of courts before and after. Uh, COVID-19. And uh, we began putting together uh, plans and methods to keep courts up and going during the pandemic and coming up with a method to standardize when courts, uh, standardize protocols for COVID, um, COVID court appearances uh, during the pandemic and to standardize safety protocols statewide. So that consumed a good portion of the summer of 2020, for me anyway, um, having meetings nearly constantly trying to come, come up with safety protocols and safety standards for courts statewide. I could imagine that the resources for some counties are not as much as for other counties. Was that a factor? It was. And, you know, we're a large state. We're a very diverse state. So there were some areas of the state where COVID was not really an issue. And there were other areas of the state where um, COVID was running rampant. And to come up with a set of criteria that would logically apply statewide, you know, to let chief judges know when they could open up their courthouses again, was quite a challenge. To some extent, the courts opened back up. 
at least virtually, if not actually, and, and some of the work started to get done. Tell us what things were not conducive to Zoom hearings or trials or could not move forward. Uh, jury trials were the thing that was most impacted, I believe, by COVID. Um, with the you know, foresight of the uh, Trial Court Budget Commission, they realized that we were going to need the ability to do virtual hearings. So they found the funding to ensure that every uh, circuit had the ability to get Zoom licenses and other technology for their judges to, uh, to appear in virtual hearings. And we used that, uh, we used those virtual hearings really for at least six months, almost exclusively statewide. And um, if the Supreme Court had not laid the groundwork for electronic access to court files and electronic filing, we would not have been able to do those virtual hearings. You know, lawyers may have had a hard time getting the pleadings. Judges, certainly, if they were appearing virtually and not in the courthouse, would have had a very hard time seeing a court file if it was not available online. So we were lucky in a sense that we had some basic foundation to build on during the pandemic for remote access. Absolutely. Well, I want to uh, now look to the future and we're not out of 100% out of the pandemic. We don't know what the future lies as far as what we'll be affected by, but what is the commission and your work group doing to analyze what is working, what is not working, and what we can use after the pandemic is over? Well, the Chief Justice has given several tasks to the Florida Courts Technology Commission to analyze you know, what did work during the pandemic and to provide some protocols uh, for virtual hearings. He's also, um, during the pandemic, he instituted a case management system for civil cases, because civil cases were greatly impacted by COVID. And has he has charged the Florida Courts Technology Commission with coming up with some standards to permit courts to analyze their caseloads and to standardize their case management, which is, it can be quite a task. In addition to that, we have also, uh, he charged the continuity work group with proposing rules that would permit the continued use of those things that worked during the COVID pandemic on a permanent basis. So we filed a rules petition last summer and it is set for oral argument soon. And I know you can't have a crystal ball to, to see what's going to fly or what is not going to fly, but is there anything that regarding the remote platforms that any kind of cases that you can see moving forward remotely instead of having people coming into the courthouse? I would think it would make sense certainly to have non-evidentiary hearings of short duration to be to to allow the lawyers to appear remotely. It saves them time. It saves their clients money. It makes sense to be able to do that. Even some uh, short evidentiary hearings, I, I think, are appropriate for Zoom technology or for other types of technology. And I think 
the hybrid court appearance is probably here to stay. That is what I have noticed since um, the pandemic. I have been doing a lot of Jimmy Rice trials, and in every one of them, one or more witnesses appears remotely. So you have the jurors, the lawyers, some witnesses live in person in the courtroom, and then you have the witness that is appearing live, but over uh, audiovisual equipment. So I think that is here to stay. And we're still working out some of the bugs on that, I think, statewide. But it makes sense to you know, per permit some professionals, if they're giving technical opinions, to be able to appear remotely. Well, I want to thank you for your work and the Technology Commission's work on that. And I know that at my court, at the Division of Administrative Hearings, we have really utilized Zoom hearings. And I think that like you said, the hybrid is definitely there to say. And a lot of the pro se cases, I think it's easier for pro se people to show up remotely. I have been surprised about that. I would agree with you. Um, they don't have to take the day off work and they don't have to find parking in downtown Orlando. So I, I do think that we have gotten more attendance of self-represented litigants via um, a virtual platform than, than we might have gotten before. Well, I want to ask you on a less serious note, I know another technology thing at the Ninth Circuit is the Open Ninth Podcast. Do you, I know that you have been both an interviewer and an interviewee on those podcasts. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we have had a podcast in this circuit for quite a while. I think we are the only um, circuit that has had a podcast as long as we've had. And so we, we've had... I've had some interesting guests uh, on the podcast and talked about some interesting subjects. In addition to talking about you know, law and talking to lawyers and judges, I've also had the opportunity um, to talk about social media and you know, the security of social media. Talk about forensic genealogy, which is you know, really a fascinating subject that is uh, fairly new on the scene. So it, it's it's an interesting thing. I learn something every time I do a podcast, and I hope that people enjoy listening to them. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that recently you've been awarded a number of professionalism awards, and not just recently, but over the years, and you've lectured judges on professionalism. What can you encourage newer attorneys to do to be professional and to uh, promote professionalism in our profession? Well, obviously, you have to be in court, prepared, and on time. Those, that's the obvious thing. One of the other things I think young lawyers sometimes forget is that you've got to be civil. You've got to be civil to the other side, whether you're in court or not. For many years, I was in our business court, and we would have case management conferences between the attorneys with their clients. And I would let their client know that the attorney that was the most professional and would do the best job for them was the one that was most prepared, not the one that was yelling and screaming. Because I assumed if, some, if an attorney was in court yelling and screaming at me or at the other side, it was because they really didn't have anything of substance to say, and they were making up for that with volume. 
So, you know, one of the things that I like to tell young lawyers is you really need to be civil and you need to be straightforward with the court and opposing counsel. Because um, if you get a reputation, it's very easy to get a reputation for incivility and for dishonesty. And if you garner that reputation, it takes a very, very long time to undo that damage. Well, I really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure getting to know you, Judge Munyon. I hope that you keep fighting the good fight for all of the court system and that you stay safe. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. This concludes this episode of Never Contemplated. Thanks to Rebecca Bandy and Katie Young for making this podcast a reality. Also, thanks to Clay Shaw, the Florida Bar's creative support manager, for making us sound good. For more information on the Florida Courts Technology Commission, the Open Ninth podcast, and proposed changes to rules and procedures, check out the links in the notes section underneath the link to this podcast.